Katie, something happened on Twitter and I'm not there to see what it was. Yeah, Jesse. So you probably don't know about this because you left Twitter in a huff. You're now spending all of your time on, is it Blue Sky, Posts, Mastodon, where are you spending your time? Grinder. Uh, I started a new platform. It's just, it's called Social Justice. It's for people who care about social justice. Oh, it must be really catching on. Yeah. So Elon made what I think might be his worst design decision now. <laughs> Wait, hold on. That is saying so much. Yeah. This is like in the territory of like Hitler's most anti-Semitic utterance. Okay. So would you be willing to log on to Twitter just for a second so no. you can see what I'm talking no. about? No. Explain it to me. I'm not doing that. <sighs> really? Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. It's just like you're you're like you have a, if you I'm sure you have friends who are in recovery. <laughs> you're like just take take one little sip. Just a little Please shot. Please do not do not compare your Twitter addiction to people dealing with actual drugs and alcohol. Mine is much much worse. You're right. That was offensive. Yours is more embarrassing. That's true. Okay, here's what he did. You know how normally like you post an article on Twitter, you see the headline of the article and like maybe some text under it like the subhead, but the headline is the important part. And maybe maybe an image, right? Yeah. yeah. So now he took away the headline, so the only thing you can see when you post an article is the image. Why? He said that he did some interview a while a while back where he said he thought it would be more aesthetic. Can you send me a screenshot of what just what this looks like in practice? If you would just log no. into Twitter, you could see this for no, yourself. You're Fuck, enabling Jesus. me. God, you're so God damn it. Oh, oh. Fine. give me a second. Uh, yeah, I don't understand what's going on because I'm just all I see is an image of Aaron Rodgers and a guy explaining something, but I without the headline or more text, it's very confusing. Right. So it's completely useless. This is what all articles look like on Twitter right now. So I'm actually I just clicked on that link. The actual article is called "Anti-Vaxxer Aaron Rodgers Makes a Fool of Himself for Mocking Travis Kelsey as Mister Pfizer." You would have zero. This could be an article about. Aaron Rodgers eating human people or, you know, or he quit the NFL or whatever. You would have no indication from that of what this is actually about from the image that shows up on Twitter. So he has just made it. I think he, what he's trying to do is to, like, keep people on the app longer. But it, this has the opposite effect because you can't even see the headline so that you have to click out of the app to see what you're even looking at. Yeah, this would have the opposite effect. I wonder, like, I yeah. read some quick thing, I don't know the legality of it, of, like, people with a stake in Twitter sometimes, like, somehow trying to take it back from him in a hostile manner. Maybe he's just, like, an accelerationist, and he's trying to... He's he's ruined it. I've also noticed a huge decrease in, like... I'll see a thread that, like, seems like it would have gone very viral and has, like, 55 read. It seems like people are actually leaving it. So you are checking Twitter. Is that what you're saying? No, I have to click... If I'll click on a link to a tweet, mm-hmm. I don't log in ever. That's where I get in trouble. But it seems like whereas when when Elon Musk took over, everyone was, like, pretended to leave in a huff and then immediately slunk back in, I feel like people are actually leaving now. I could be wrong. I don't know if people are actually leaving, but the platform is is just worse. It's undoubtedly worse. And this is maybe one of the few cases where every time I, I criticize Elon Musk, there's always a flood of Elon stands in my mentions talking about how he's actually a genius, blah, blah, blah. This design change is so stupid that it, there's still that still exists, but it's a pretty small fraction of the overall response to this because it's, it's this is absolutely baffling. And what's going to happen is that the poor, beleaguered, underpaid social media managers whose job it is to promote their outlets 
work, what they're going to have to do is just find some workaround that puts the headline itself in the image. So it's going to look like shit. It's going to create more work for people. And it's not going to improve the aesthetics of the site whatsoever. Yeah, he has no idea what he's doing. He's wrecking everything. Part of me is an accelerationist in my own right, because I think a world, from a media perspective, a world without Twitter would be better. But it's 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 sort of baffling. It's like that that Trump level of just weird thing after weird thing after weird thing where it just it, it melts your brain after a certain point. There was one thing I think he walked back. So like you said that you've been able to check Twitter without logging in. For a while, you couldn't do that. You had to have an account to see anything on the platform. I think the what he's walked back is you can read an individual tweet, but then you can't see any of the replies. Right? So Twitter is still um, mostly, if you're not logged in, Large swaths of it don't really exist unless you look hard. I love that because I've, I've told you I sometimes want to just delete my entire history, which you talked me out of. But I just I don't want mm-hmm. like who among us like for for who for whomst among us is our Twitter presence a particularly good thing we want to draw attention, public attention to for definitely not for me. This is my legacy. What are you talking about? Yeah, this is all you got. It's different. Mm-hmm. Katie, what is the name of this increasingly off Twitter podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. So today we're going to talk about uh, race and the reckoning and whether a recent scandal involving Ibram X. Kendi might mark the end of this glorious and or weird and or whatever racial reckoning. But before that, you wanted to tell me about something. And before that, I want to read a very brief email from a listener that made me feel great. Folks will remember we went to LA. The only thing that happened there was we ate an amazing sandwich at a place called Dune. Mm -hmm. This is from Lewis. I've lived in Los Angeles for almost 15 years. And as much as it pains me to get food recommendations from a New Yorker, let alone a podcaster, that pickled beet sandwich at Dune is the best thing I've eaten in an age. Thank you for drawing my attention to it. I almost never go downtown, but it was worth the trip. Hell yeah. Wow. I feel like a hero right now. We are bringing people the good word about the pickled beet sandwich at Dune downtown LA. Until Lewis gets murdered because of downtown LA. But hopefully that won't happen. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But hey, at least his last meal will be a good one. Yeah, that's true. Okay, Katie, what uh, you wanted to talk about a thing. Yeah. So have you ever heard the name Trevor Bauer? Yes. But from where? So he's a pro baseball player. He's currently the pitcher with the Yokohama Bay Stars that is in Japan. He is formerly of a bunch of different MLB teams. Uh, and he's good. He's a Cy Young Award winner, which I th- that's a good thing. You don't get that for being the worst player on the team? I feel bad. I don't remember this. He won the Cy Young, but now he's pitching in Japan. Yes. So it, we will get to why in a second. But in 2021, he signed a three-year contract with the Dodgers for just over $100 million. So he's he's very good. Uh, he led the league in strikeouts in the first part of that season. But in July of that year, he was accused of sexual assault and he was placed on administrative leave by the, uh, by the MLB. Uh, they conducted an investigation, suspended him for 324 games. That's like, a, I don't know, there's uh, something like 9,000 games in a baseball 10, season. 10,000. So that's like a, a, like a tenth <laughs> of, a, of a season. Um, he appealed that. It was reduced to almost 200 games. And then the Dodgers ended up releasing him early and he left to go play in Japan. So I really don't follow baseball anymore. I remember so little of this. Anyway. Yeah. So he's an interesting guy. A lot of controversy in his past. He's very online. So even before the sexual assault allegations, he's been accused of harassing women on Twitter. If you thought that was something that only gamers do, no, baseball players do it too. Uh, there was one case in particular that got him in some hot water. So basically there was a college student, a woman 
who tweeted that he was her least favorite player and, and that they started this kind of playful back and forth, maybe even a little bit flirtatious, but he just kept tweeting at her over and over and over. He tweeted at her 80 times. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Do you like <laughs> yeah. me? Do you like and me? And he has over a half a million followers, so I think things got pretty nasty for this woman. He's kind of a troll. Like, he launched a charity called 69 Days of Giving. Nice. Where, yeah, he donated $420.69 nice. to 68 charities. <laughs> And then he had his followers vote on, like, the last big charity, the 69th charity, and he donated $69,420.69 to that charity. Nice. So he was a Trump supporter. He has some doubts about climate change and Barack Obama's birthplace, stuff like that. And he's widely known for being a dick. And it might have been in part because of his reputation that many, many people believed the allegations of sexual assault when they were leveled at him in 2021. And the allegations were bad. So this is from an article in The Athletic in June of 2021. The article was called Graphic Details, Photos Emerge in Restraining Order Filed Against Dodgers Pitcher Trevor Bauer. Here's a quote from that. A domestic violence restraining order filed against Dodgers pitcher Trevor Bauer and executed on June 28th includes multiple graphic images from the woman who filed the request. The woman, in a 67-page ex parte document, said that Bauer assaulted her on two different occasions. Together, the woman said those two incidents included Bauer punching her in the face, vagina, and buttocks, sticking his fingers down her throat, and strangling her to the point where she lost consciousness multiple times. And then uh, they quote her later on. I woke up to my face down in the bed disoriented. I began realizing that he was having sex with me in my anus, which I never communicated that I wanted, nor did I consent, the woman said in her official declaration attached to the requested order. So at the time, The Athletic didn't publish the victim's name. It has since become public. Her name is Lindsay Hill. Bauer has always maintained that the two of them went into this sexual encounter with a consensual agreement that they were going to have rough sex, that she consented to this. But The Athletic reported that after the encounter, Lindsay Hill went to the hospital and there was, quote, significant head and facial trauma and that there were signs of basilar skull fracture. But if you go to that article now, there's an editor's note at the top that says, This story has been revised to clarify that the CT scan found no evidence the woman suffered a skull fracture and emergency room medical records attached to the woman's request concluded she suffered no such fracture. The athletic did not intend to state or imply that the woman suffered a fractured skull. So the reason that that note exists is because Trevor Bauer sued the athletic for defamation, claiming that not only was the complainant's Lindsay Hill's skull not fractured, but the athletic possessed her medical records, so they should have known that her skull wasn't fractured, and they implied that it was. So he also sued a former athletic reporter named Molly Knight, who wasn't actually a part of that story, but she tweeted something about him cracking this woman's skull. He dropped both of those suits earlier this year after The Athletic agreed to add that editor's note and Molly agreed to delete her tweets. So the reason we're talking about this now is because this week, Trevor Bauer posted this video on social media. Jesse, let's watch part of that now. Next victim, star pitcher for the Dodgers. A text Lindsay Hill sent to a friend before she ever even met me. What should I steal? She asked another in reference to visiting my house for the first time. The answer? Take his money. So how might that work? I'm going to his house Wednesday, she said. I already have my hooks in. You know how I roll. Then, after the first time we met, net worth is 51 mil, she said. Bitch, you better secure the bag, was the response. Uh, but, But how was she gonna do that? Need daddy to choke me out, she said. Being an absolute whore to try to get in on his 51 million, read another text. 
Then, after the second time we met, former Padres pitcher Jacob Nix told her, you gotta get this bag. I'll give you 50000 Lindsay replied. Her AA sponsor asked her at one point, do you feel a tiny bit guilty? Not really, she replied. Since then, her legal team has approached me multiple times about coming to a financial settlement. But, as I have done since day one, I refuse to pay her even a single cent. Uh, in August of 2021, Lindsay Hill's claims were heard in court. And during those legal proceedings, critical information was deliberately and unlawfully concealed from me and my legal team. Uh, information like this video, which was taken by Lindsay Hill herself the morning after she claimed she was brutally attacked, emotionally traumatized, and desperate to get away from me. Uh, and now we have the metadata, so there can be no dispute. Uh, it was taken mere minutes before she left my house on the morning of May 16th, 2021, without my knowledge or consent, of course. Uh, in it, you can see her lying in bed next to me while I'm sleeping, smirking at the camera without a care in the world, or any marks on her face. I think it paints a pretty clear picture of what actually happened the evening of May 15th and why the video was originally concealed from us. Yeah. Uh, after hearing the evidence available to her, Judge Diana Gold Saltman found that Lindsay Hill had misled the court. She found her claims to be materially misleading. Uh, she denied her request for a domestic violence restraining order, and she found that no sexual assault or non-consensual conduct took place. Okay, so later in the video, Bauer explains that after this restraining order failed, he sued her, she countersued him, they reached a settlement that involved no exchange of money, and part of the terms of the settlement was that he was allowed to publicly talk about the experience. So, Jesse, what did you think of that video? I mean, that's incredibly damning. It makes it seem like, assuming everything he says is true, um, and it makes it sound like she's a real a complete liar who tried to ruin his life. Yeah. So we, I should note here, there are more allegations against him. So in 2021, uh, after the news broke about this restraining order, the Washington Post reported that a woman in Ohio had sought a restraining order against him in 2020 and that that same woman accused him of assault in 2017. He denies those allegations and he says that the woman, it was the woman who harassed and assaulted him. And then also after the news broke, two more women came forward, including a woman in Arizona who accused him of raping her in 2020. She sued him in December last year. He countersued her in April of this year and that suit is ongoing. So his legal problems aren't over yet, but he does appear to have won this round. Yeah. I mean, we should obviously take those accusations seriously, although not just believe them reflectively. Did, did the Athletic report on these latest developments? So they did. And the reporting is pretty bland considering how wrong they got this story in the first place. Like they covered the allegations extensively from the beginning, like the initial allegations through the investigation and the suspension in his move to Japan. I mean, I'm talking dozens of stories. And then when he puts out this video and they and it turns out they've settled, they wrote one story about the settlement and it was called Trevor Bauer settles legal dispute with woman who accused him of sexual assault, which is factually true, but it does not describe at all what he is contending. And what he's contending is that he was falsely accused and he seems to have the receipts to back it up in this case. Uh, the, the story they published also included a comment from Lindsay Hill's lawyers who were also spinning it as a victory for her. Quote, Hill's lawyers described the outcome as an outstanding resolution in which Hill did not pay Bauer and received $300,000 from an insurance claim. Quote, based on that payment, Lindsay agreed to settle the lawsuit, Hill's attorney Brian Freeman said. Now that the lawsuit is over, Lindsay looked forward to helping others. And Ethan Strauss also wrote a good a good post about the media coverage of this event, and he pointed out that the athletics piece about this, in Ethan's word words, quote, offers the most vague description possible. Here's a quote from their piece. 
Bauer himself released a video on social media in which he said the lawsuit had been resolved, but that he kept his right to, pe- to speak publicly about the case. Like, that's all they said about this. Oh, man. That's um, that's really, really bad journalism to not just... Yeah. I, again, like, that doesn't mean you need to say everything he said in the video is true, but he's making very concrete claims, and he shows this video where he claims they have the metadata. And um, I do think someone who has as much money as he does and who has been through the legal run have probably cleared that with his own legal team before posting it, although we don't know. But this just seems like really bad reporting. Yeah. So Ethan also points out that The Athletic was hardly alone in their framing of this. And he thinks that this is influenced not just by the the fact that Trevor Bauer is not a likable guy to the sports media. He's not. He's an asshole. He, and he's like an asshole by his own contention. Yeah. Um, but also because of his politics. So he's a MAGA guy, or at least he's MAGA coded. And the sports press, like basically every other sector of the media outside of the explicitly conservative media, is stocked with liberals. And so they're more likely to think that he's a piece of shit and to assume that the allegations against him are true. And of course, that's just part of it. Like there are other Trump supporters who are popular with the press. They're likable, uh, who might get more defense than than Trevor Bauer did. And some added context from Ethan is that one of the most prominent baseball writers in the industry was this good liberal named Jonathan Carey, who is now in prison for beating his wife. And so, as Ethan told me, that sort of thing can inform a competition to be the most performatively outraged over an abuse incident. Yeah, um, this is a very Ethan Strauss sort of story. I, I now I want to read his piece about it, but yeah, yeah, man, I I think there's like a rash of these stories where, I mean, some of this reminded me of Army Hammer, where yeah. like at least one woman who was supposedly horrifically beaten up, there was strong physical or or sort of time stamped evidence that wasn't true, and people just don't revisit their previous bad reporting, which is just really shoddy and unethical. Right. It's also kind of funny to me that the sports press is as like full of like chock full of progressives and leftists as any other as any other part of the media. It's just sort of surprising to me because I still think of sports people as fundamentally jocks. I I guess they're not the jocks themselves or the people who judge the jocks. This is something Ethan has talked about, particularly in the context of an NBA locker room, which is not a woke place at all. And then like in the NFL, the NFL is famously full of like Christian evangelical players. So there's a pretty big divide, I think, between the sorts of people who become sports journalists uh, or a certain type of sports journalist and then players themselves. The one exception, there's like corners of sports journalism. Like if you're uh, Barstool. Well, Barstool, yes, but also like if you're an NFL analyst or an NBA analyst, it's overwhelmingly um, in those areas, former players are overrepresented. Uh, so yeah. um, like Charles Barkley is not. It's weird. They often have like like sort of heterodox politics like most normal Americans do. Like someone like Charles Barkley is definitely not woke. Anyway. Um, or like Kyrie Irving. You know, he's going to be on <laughs> camera after he retires talking about how the Jews did 9-11. Exactly. Exactly. Well, <laughs> he's, his brain is just very hard to grasp. He doesn't really... Oh, God. What a weird guy. Uh, anyway, that was... Uh, looks pretty bad for The Athletic, which is now part of The New York Times. Right. It definitely does. Um, also, this case, I should just note, this case was settled with no money exchange. Again, that is not the same thing as an acquittal. He was not tried or exonerated in, in criminal court. And there are more allegations against this guy. I did. I personally found the video pretty convincing, but this is obviously just his side of the story. And he is selectively giving us information to make his case. Uh, Lindsay has done some press herself as well, although oddly, it seems like mostly with conservative outlets. She did an interview with The Blaze where she basically says that he cherry picked these text messages in order to make her look bad. 
uh, and that he misrepresented what happened in the video. She basically says she was being sarcastic in, in, in the text message and she didn't actually set out to extort him and that she actually was injured. You just couldn't see it in this video because of the lighting. The interviewer itself, I, I left Fiona feeling almost a little bad for her because the this journalist keeps just pressing her on these things and she keeps saying, she keeps saying that's a super valid point that's a super valid point like she does, she seems like she needs some media training anyway we will post that and some other links in the show notes thank you katie that's uh all very depressing yeah look at me being a sports journalist <laughs> uh okay do you want to switch to the less depressing concept of american race relations sure should we do housekeeping first sure let's we are a podcast we're called blocked and reported and if you go to blockchainreported.org, you can find out more about us. Most importantly, you can become a premium member, a primo or a preemie. And uh, if you do that, you get three extra episodes a month. What was our most recent one about? Knitting. Knitting. The Knitting Wars. More Knitting Wars. And witches. And witches. We finally, we finally gave our answer as to whether people have been waiting for years for us to finally chime in on whether the Salem witch trials were good or bad. And we do that, but we put it behind a paywall because it was very controversial. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious to everyone that they were good, right? Kitty, don't give away the milk for free. Oh, sorry. You know? Make them buy the cow. Okay. Uh, and then uh, com for our subreddit, barpodmerch.com for our ever-selling merch. We got hats. That's it. Uh, no, we have other stuff too. And then go to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, please. I believe we're still at 4.7, but when we get to 4.8, I will finally be happy mm-hmm. and tell my dad I love him. <laughs> but he, is he going to say it back to you? That's the question. Well, that's that's what I'm a little bit scared about. Uh, anything else, Katie? Blockedandreported.org. Blockedandreported.org. Okay, so the rest of the episode, we're going to talk about Ibram X. Kendi. But it seems like an opportunity not just to talk about Ibram X. Kendi, but to sort of provide something of an epilogue for this whole wacky reckoning we've gone through these last few years. Um, is it over? Well, that's one of the things I'm going to ask you. Is if like a let's get let's get there. So let's just let's just start okay. from the beginning. I think it's safe to say that our podcast probably would not have existed, or definitely not in its current form were it not for the racial reckoning that swept over the nation in 2020. So we launched in March of 2020. George Floyd is murdered uh, at the end of May a couple months later. This caused a great amount of upheaval. Some of it occurred in the streets where there were both peaceful protests and significant amounts of rioting and looting. Mostly um, peaceful rioting and looting. 99.9999% peaceful. Uh, and yeah, no, there was there was some rioting and looting. Some of it got pretty bad. Uh, we can say that now. But but so that was the reckoning in the streets. The quieter and from where we sat, sort of more in certain ways intense reckoning occurred in media and in academia and in the liberal ideas world. Imagine that capitalized, so it sounds super douchey. Um, and this reckoning had to do with symbols and ideas and and language. So how would not to put you on the spot? And this is sort of my segment, but how would you sum up? what this looked like, what the reckoning looked like as someone working in media as this occurred. Imagine a test (laughs) kitchen. (laughs) Um, What it looked like was a bunch of liberals, mostly, like people who are probably not overtly racist, getting 
fired from their job. How dare? How, first of all, how dare fucking you. dare you like, say any of them aren't racist? <laughs> a bunch of people who have basically progressive values, who have voted for Obama three times, uh, getting fired from their jobs for being inadequately anti-racist or for committing a various various degrees of microaggressions. There are many many such cases, um, and we did we did many podcasts about them. Yeah, and I think we caught up. It wasn't just people getting fired from their jobs. I mean, there was also a lot of you know this is all. Also overlapping with cancel culture, there were a lot of, uh, I think, social networks were frayed over things like not putting a black square on your Instagram profile on the day when white people were all supposed to do this. So there was a lot of performative outrage that did absolutely nothing to um, to help black people, to help the black community. Um, but we do capitalize the word black now. So. <laughs> and some and some uh, some of the leaders of BLM got some very nice homes. Yes, surprisingly, we we don't disagree on this. Like from my point of view, the conversation within the liberal ideas world quickly succumbed to a lot of essentialist and sort of faux radical thinking. So by essentialist, I mean the idea. Uh, you know, we heard a lot of uses of terms like black, always with the capital B. And person mm-hmm. of color, as though these BIPOC. were unified groups, BIPOCs. So you'd hear a lot about how we need more diversity in newsrooms, which is surely true, especially in some newsrooms, uh, and how we need to listen to quote unquote people of color, which uh, depends on the person of color. Osama bin Laden is a person of color. I'm not sure we should listen <laughs> to him. Coleman Hughes. <laughs> I was going to say, Osama bin Laden is a person of color who's an example. He had some good ideas about the overreach right, of American right. foreign policy. Uh, I sort of felt like from the start, and you mentioned you just mentioned Coleman Hughes's name. That's a good example. From the start, it only really seemed like a certain type of person of color was particularly welcome during the reckoning. And I, you know, at the risk of oversimplifying, I feel like it was people of color who reflected back at white liberals their own views and pathologies and neuroses about race in America. Do you think that's a fair general diagnosis of the situation? I, I feel like it's racist to say it was just reflecting back what white people think. So I'll say it was a very the overwhelming ethos was a very educated, upper middle class, very much concerned with not even like material changes for the majority of, of black people or people of color in this country, but things like getting black people on more boards Things like that. Katie, thank you for calling me out for my racism. I'll try to do better. Um, I want to be clear. By reflecting, what I mean is a lot of the institutions that sort of are gatekeepers and get to choose who gets to speak, who gets to write, who gets to talk for a big audience, I think they're overwhelmingly white liberals. And in terms of who who won this moment, who got columns, who got speaking gigs, I think white liberals chose people who happened to agree with them. I'm not mm-hmm. saying the, the people of color in question didn't earnestly hold those beliefs, but, but there's a reason it was more uh, people who aren't Coleman Hughes, you know? Right. And that has changed somewhat. I mean, John McWhorter has a column in the New York Times right now. I don't think that would have happened in 2020. No, definitely not. Um, so, yeah, I I thought, you know, the whole defund and abolish the police movements got a lot of airplay relative to their actual popularity, which has always been minimal. I mean, perhaps most famously, there was in, in June of 2020, the Times ran a column headlined, yes, we mean literally abolish the police, which um, did not happen. In some cases, the, the sort of inflated appearance of popularity of unpopular ideas had actual consequences, like in some places, local leaders really did pledge to do major defunding of the police. Um, 
Critics have argued that in some places this actually led to an uptick in crime. I think it's hard to say for sure, but but either way, like it's clear that these broadly unpopular policies were were pursued in some places. And in some of them, like in Minneapolis, like pledges to seriously defund the police totally collapsed because that's not what people actually wanted. Yeah. And even in places where the police weren't literally defunded, the ethos behind uh, ACAB, all cops are bastards, fuck the police, became much more mainstreamed. And because of that, I think as a direct result of that, you have declining public support for police. And and you can say, okay, well, actually, the declining public support from police comes from police brutality. That's fair. It becomes harder to recruit and retain police. And as a consequence of that, crimes go unsolved or things like police response times for even violent crimes goes way, way up. This yeah. is what we've seen in places like Seattle, at least. And we're talking about really complicated systems, and it's it's multi-causal, blah blah blah. But yeah, these are these are all problems people have experienced. And and I even think like the response to things like Chaz Chopped, where mm-hmm. like the mayor is in indoor- It was the mayor, right, who basically said it was like the summer of love. Yeah, Jenny Durkin. She's it, no longer it, the mayor. It has to. It has. It takes a very specific weird moment for a mayor to endorse. You're you're. you're you basically endorse a block of complete anarchy and lawlessness in your city because, God forbid, the police restore order there. I really think that was a reckoning moment. And multiple black people, young black men, were killed within two Chaz kids Chop. were killed. There were also yeah. sexual assaults happening on this on this property. Like, <laughs> I love what dude. I'll never forget the Vox's coverage of it, which included someone being like. Well, you know, back when it was just a normal club district, there were also sexual assaults. <laughs> it's like, you get it's a little bit different when you literally can't call the police because it's like right. armed bullet. Right. Anyway. I, I, um, I also think, before we move in, I also, can I just say, I always found the idea, if the problem is bad policing, I always found the idea that you're going to cut budgets for police pretty mystifying because it seems to me that if you want better cops, you should train them more. And that's going to cost money. Yeah. I think maybe Matt Iglesias or someone like that pointed this out, but it's like, our schools are not performing at a high enough level. Let's defund them. <laughs> There's not, Okay. But we should be clear. There's a steel man version of that. Like you don't want hyper militarized police or like to give them like our, you know, incredible tactical gear when they're not trained to talk down a crazy person. But yeah, of course not. But you also have, you know, people with means, people who can afford it will hire their own private security if the if the community turns into just a lawless hellhole. Yeah. One point I've, I've certainly made before on this podcast is that like black Americans themselves, like the just the group of black Americans who we can't overgeneralize about, but they're supposedly the people the reckoning is about um, all the polling we have suggests they have like a complicated relationship with police again at the level of averages. Cause they all think differently and there are, there's so many different groups and ethnicities in there, but like the average sentiment, if you had to mega oversimplify it is like, you don't show up when you, we need you to. And then you hassle us when we want to be left alone. There is not much support for fewer cops in black neighborhoods among black people themselves. And I just felt like that fact was almost entirely erased during the reckoning as was like, you know, black opinion about crime is, is complicated and it's not as simple as like, well, there's white supremacy, therefore more black people are being killed and that's bad. Cause like a lot of these problems are more complicated to solve than that. Right. But all of that nuance gets lost in a place like Twitter or on the media where you typically have black people and their white allies of a certain class. Yes. And, and I think the problem here is that if you're a white journalist or editor or professor, 
The black friends you have or the acquaintances and colleagues you have are likely to be similar to you in certain key respects. Namely, they're likely to be college educated and they won't be poor or working class. I'm not, these aren't hard and fast rules, but it's just who you get exposed to in your day-to-day life of going to happy hours and events and talks and and class and education are highly predictive of certain hot button political issues and they're also correlated with insulation from violence this is rob henderson's idea of luxury beliefs like Mm -hmm. rich people can say abolish the police to fund the police all they want they do not bear the brunt of violent crime because the poor you are the more likely you are to be murdered and, and the gap the magnitude of that gap is staggering so not long after the reckoning started, it just didn't seem to really be about like working class or poor people. I'm not saying people didn't like hold up working class or poor people, you know, as a mascot, but you know, in, instead a, a group called black lives matter came to represent the reckoning. And it was actually many groups in one, but many of its most prominent members were sort of comfortable and well-versed in, in mainstream white dominated liberal spaces. And they said the sorts of things, Radical chic white liberals like to hear capitalism's bad. At one point, BLM was talking about how the nuclear family is bad and and so on. So, of course, I'm oversimplifying and like you can't capture the views of everyone who tweeted the hashtag or participated in a BLM protest. But I do think those views tended to get a lot of uh, maybe like more visibility than they should have given their actual popularity. It would be interesting to go to, and I, I wonder if any journalist did this, go to like, go to a black church on a Sunday and ask them how they feel about abolishing the police. I mean, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we know from polling what the answer would be, but I mean, what, what I'll never forget, I did at least one Substack about this was the Times coverage of Minneapolis. They had like nine reporters on one story. All the quotes from black Minneapolis residents were at least sympathetic to defunding the police, which is statistically impossible unless mm-hmm. you cherry pick the shit out of that. So, again, it's like, mm-hmm. listen to black people. Which ones? I, I just I'm right. very skeptical that anyone actually wants to listen to black people at the level of like the average or working class black person. I don't think there's that much of that. And of course, we're speaking as white podcasters like we're removed from it, too. So but it just I don't know. Um, so I, I think like because of all this symbolism, because of all this radical chic stuff, there was a marked absence of like real policy discussion, let alone real critiques of our economic system and its unfairness. I mean, substantive ones, not just railing about capitalism. And it felt like whichever ideas gained ground during the reckoning uh, were things that college educated people care about. Like student debt forgiveness was one of the biggest you know, substantive policy campaigns we've seen since then. And that's a policy that would disproportionately flow to wealthier people, right? Yeah, that's all of the data shows that. So um, I don't think it's surprising in light of all of this, which sorts of intellectual gurus came away from the reckoning as folks who could sell a lot of books and who could who could give talks for high prices. One of them was Robin D'Angelo. We've talked a lot about her on the show. We'll put old episodes in the show notes. But her whole thing is he's cult-like trainings where white people grapple with their internal racism. Uh, She targets white liberals and particularly white liberal women because who else would submit to that sort of treatment? Uh, Again, we've talked about her at length, so I I don't want to waste too much time on her here. We've talked less about Ibram X. Kendi, who was um, arguably the other biggest winner among guru types during this period. Katie, had you heard of him before The Reckoning? Oh, I'm sure I had, mostly from Twitter and the fact that he writes for The Atlantic. I don't know really what my familiarity was with him, though. He certainly 
really this the reckoning was certainly really good for his career yeah he and yet you're right he had absolutely established himself before that he wrote stamped from the beginning the definitive history of racist ideas in america in uh 2016 that won a national book award i I haven't read it i sense it's pretty well respected overall like i at the very least i don't really get the feeling anyone thinks it's crazy or anything like that uh but it was his second book how to be an anti-racist uh which came out in 2019 and turned out to be absolutely perfect reckoning fodder i will admit i haven't read it either although it's been sitting on my shelf for a while but at this point like everyone knows it's chief tenets um and it absolutely i read the kids version did you and wait is that anti-racist <laughs> baby like a... or the young adult version yeah anti-racist baby yeah it took five minutes i was standing in a bookstore <laughs> <laughs> uh, was it good oh it was great i think there's maybe you uh, you can color in maybe um I do think like in light of these ideas which we'll get to in a second like you you could just see how he the book just absolutely accidentally nailed the ethos of the reckoning among college educated types. Uh, and, and one of the key ideas was like the most important way to fight racial inequality and unfairness in the United States is through taking strong, simple moral stances. Like you have to pick a side and, Kendi's key idea, or one of them, is that everything is racist or anti-racist. There's nothing really in the middle. And any policy that leads to racial discrepancies is definitionally racist. This was absolutely catnip to the group of people spending the most time buying books about the reckoning, thinking about it, and defining the terms of the conversation. I, I mean, wh- assuming you agree with me on that, Katie, why do you think that this this sort of uh, Manichaean good and evil view of the world as it pertains to racism proved so popular. Well, I think that's exactly it, because it's a very simplistic, good and evil view of the world. So this was, of course, yes, catnip for people who are attracted to his ideas. It was also catnip for people who refute his ideas, because it's so simplistic. And you can think of easily think of a million examples of policies that are neither racist nor anti-racist. Where are you going to put a stop sign on this road? Things like that. (laughs) It is so easy to disprove this basic thesis that it also became very attractive to sort of the anti-woke people who then perpetuated the idea by talking about it over and over and over. Yes. And that sort of attention from conservatives and anti-woke types absolutely helps you out if you're a progressive figure, Mm -hmm. uh, even if it's unpleasant or negative. Um, Yeah, I I think that like people obviously always like black and white thinking and rigid thinking, but that's particularly true when during like emotional upsetting times. I think that's when we're most susceptible to it. So during this period, you have this horrible video of George Floyd being murdered, and then you have the bigger, very salient issues of slavery and the failure of reconstruction and the ongoing legacy of American racism. Um, At a time like that, like when people are being buffeted with all with all these like just uh, profoundly strong feelings, you can see why they turn to gurus. Yeah, Helen uh, Helen Lewis had a did a podcast series about this on the BBC. And at the same time, there was just so much pressure both online and offline to say the right thing, to to show your allyship. And there were it, things got weird. I mean, it seems like a long time ago, but I don't know how much this came across your social media. This might have been more of an Instagram thing than a Twitter thing, but I followed people on social media who were just like posting the names of of random black people to Venmo. And there was this expectation that if you're a white person, you just send this black person money. And that's (laughs) absolutely bizarre. So bizarre. Yeah, but that's like that's the kind of climate in which someone like Kendi, uh, who offers easy answers and is sort of a leadership figure, can can thrive. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like it's sort of a brilliant approach, especially when you look at like what it's competing with. Like a, a nerd like me, or even like a Matt Iglesias type who actually knows more about policy, will say like, "Look, 
intergenerational poverty is a tough nut to crack. There's communities in the U.S. that have really been left behind and there's no easy answers. There was a whole war on poverty that made little headway. In fact, you can sometimes spend a lot of money on this problem. It doesn't generate improved outcomes. Part of the problem is that poor people are at all sorts of disadvantages from a young age. They can't compete for elite educational slots. Uh, blah blah blah. Like I can hear, I can hear your eyes glazing over from thousands of miles away because that's like pretty nuanced and boring and unsatisfying, right? What? <laughs> and then you have Ibram X Kendi with his very, very cathartic worldview. Like it turns out, everything, everything can be put in one bucket or another, racist or anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And I think, like especially if you're a guilty white liberal living a pretty affluent life, cut off from material hardship. This is a very appealing prospect because like first it offers you a chance to save yourself. It's like an instruction manual, like the Bible or the Quran. Yeah. And yeah, there's also like this, this intra-group competition thing because it's a tool you can use to bludgeon others who aren't as righteous as you are. As you saw with all the Instagram bullshit, uh, those are the people who don't talk about race in the correct way or have the right views. And it's because they don't pose the black square. That's why black people get shot by police. Yeah, and I think if even though this is a big multicultural diverse country, it's still segregated in a lot of ways. So if you're a white person, what about my black friend Camille? <laughs> he's not black, Jesse. He should have gone with Coleman. Oh, sorry. And so if you're a white person who mostly is surrounded by other white people, and the the black the one black friend that you have is an, you know went to Smith or something like that. I think there's a there's a lot of guilt and shame about that. And so if a black person comes around and says, follow me, there's, I think, a level of ignorance here, too, where you just you're genuinely trying to do the right thing. And here's someone who must know what the truth is, the capital T truth. So we'll just blindly follow this person. And any pushback against that was was received very, very poorly uh, during the racial reckoning. I posted on Inst- I made the, the mistake one time of posting on Instagram because all of my friends were posting that they were reading uh, Robin D'Angelo's book. And I, I posted something about how this was a white woman because I, I think a lot of people were confused about her last name, which is D'Angelo. Um, and so they just assumed that she was black. And I posted something about that. And I posted a review to her book, which was written by Kala Fasane, fantastic writer at The New Yorker who is himself black. And I got I got like long term friends calling me in, posting on Instagram that they were calling me in for this grave sin of of telling people that Robin D'Angelo was a white woman who was profiting <laughs> off of off of this movement. I thought what I was doing was anti-racist because I was pointing people to an actual black person's review of this book, but apparently not. There was just so much pressure to conform in that moment. There was. And I think it had the benefit of like feeling revolutionary, but it was fundamentally very mm-hmm. safe. Oh, and this is all happening during COVID when people are mostly when they're not outside protesting, when they're mostly in their homes. Yeah, yeah. COVID was was obviously a factor. But but I, I I'm from like the kind of suburb that probably has more like per capita copies of like Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo and Tanahazi mm-hmm. Coates and almost any other like affluent suburb, overwhelmingly white. Everyone has the right views and buys the right books and says the right things. And puts the sign in their yard. Yep. But the distance from poor people and poor people are disproportionately non-white is, is one of the prime appeals of living there. Like I'm sure some people get mad. I said that I'm not trying to cast aspersions on, you know, my own family, but, um, Despite, I'm grateful I grew up where I grew up. It's very nice. But it's undeniable that having nice things, nice parks and schools and roads is inextricably linked 
to distance from people and things that aren't so nice, from addiction and poverty and violence. So I understand why wealthy whites who are concerned about inequality reach for how to be anti-racist rather than make a real effort to like integrate their own communities. Right. I mean, and you can see this from how, you know, nice white people respond when someone wants to build more housing in their neighborhood. And I'm not blaming people for this. I'm a nymphy, not in my front yard. I don't want to lose my view. (laughs) But it's also true. Like in my old neighborhood in Seattle, before we moved out, out here, I lived in a what had been a historically black neighborhood before that had been a historically Jewish neighborhood. And I would walk around and I would see these million dollar palatial million dollar homes with signs in the front yard that say, in this house, we believe, blah, blah, blah. And these are the same people who are actually pricing the black residents out of the neighborhood. And, and gentrifi- gentrification is complicated. There are some black people who benefit from this if they sell their home or whatever. It's it's much more complicated, I think, than just good, good and evil, black and white. But there's a lot of performance when what people want is basically the status quo. Yeah. So let's get to the sort of climax of all this, which was uh, inevitably on our podcast, there's always a meltdown. Uh, so there was a meltdown involving Ibram X. Kendi. So when the reckoning started, yeah, Ibram X. Kendi already had something called um, the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University down in D.C. But if three years later, during the reckoning, he opened uh, the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, quote, my hope is that it becomes a premier research center for researchers and for practitioners to really solve these intractable racial problems of our time. Kendi said to the outlet BU Today uh, at the time, not only will the center seek to make that level of impact, but also work to transform how racial research is done. Now, the timing was accidental. They'd actually been in talks about doing this for about a year, but it it turned out to work out quite nicely for the uh, center. I'm sure. And what what exactly were they supposed to do? I mean, they're going to solve the intractable racial problems over time. Like how? So the center was split into four offices called research, narrative, policy, and advocacy. So it was like clearly a mix of messaging and conducting original research. It was just supposed to be this major clearinghouse for for cutting age work uh, on racism in America and how to fight it. Uh, Kendi told the Boston Globe in 2020, quote, data science is going to be one of the pillars of our new center and the university's investments in data science were attractive, end quote. Uh, so there was a department called the Racial Data Lab. And um, in a sign of like what was going to happen, apparently that lab's only project was something called the COVID Racial Data Tracker, which was a collaboration with the Atlantic. The idea was just to use data to highlight racial discrepancies in COVID deaths and infections, but it stopped collecting data just a year later uh, in 2021. Why? Not sure. The Racial Data Lab doesn't appear to have produced anything else, according to this very long, uh, good investigative article in the Daily Free Press, which is BU's independent student newspaper. Okay, so has there what else has the center done? Has there been much other output? No, and and that's a big part of the problem. So so the reason to sort of cut to the chase, the reason the Center for Anti-Racist Research is in the news is that in the midst of laying off almost all of its staff last month, so at least 20 to 30 staff members, there've been widespread allegations of mismanagement at just about every level. And people are wondering exactly where the money went because there was a lot of it. How much? The Free Press said the center has, I keep thinking Barry Weiss's thing when I say the Free Press, the BU, Daily Free Press, said the center has raised at least $43 million in grants and gifts. Jesus. And we we know that $10 million of that came from Twitter founder Jack Dorsey, who donated that. 
Uh, he should demand a refund. <laughs> he donated that ungodly sum to the center in August 2020 when it was just getting established. Uh, the Daily Free Press also reports that TJ Maxx's foundation, Stop and Shop, and Peloton donated more than a million dollars each. I, I like Peloton in particular just because of their clientele. Do you think they just put a hat at the door? <laughs> ask, their, ask, the, the, ask their white clientele to drop in some, some dollar bills. Wait, is it Peloton? Do they have in- I thought it was just those bikes you have at home. Oh, you're right. I was thinking of spin. You're right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm still confused about what they actually did. Like Ibram Kendi, surely he didn't just sit around counting his money, right? And writing kids' books. (laughs) Something must have come out of this. I mean, that's what's weird is like the lack of output really was a major concern among both the named and unnamed sources bashing the center in this Daily Free Press article. No one seems to actually think it produced enough. I'll give a couple examples of what it did do. Quote, the first national anti-racist book festival took place in person at American University. That's Kendi's old digs, uh, where Kendi led their anti-racist research center. The second festival was held virtually in 2022 with CAR, that's a center for anti-racism, featuring guests such as Angela Davis, uh, 50 other authors, including Kendi. So like... That's obviously so he sold more books. Yeah, that's obviously an opportunity for Kendi to continue to build his profile. And for someone like Angela Davis, unless she's like donating her time, right. she's already extremely famous and she's probably going to command a fairly significant speaking fee. So you're taking money, I don't know, if you're taking money earmarked for anti-racism sparked by a, <laughs> a working class guy getting murdered by a cop and it ends up in Angela Davis's pockets, yeah. maybe something's gone wrong. And she's going to take it and give it to Louis Farragon. It's trickled. It's trickled down uh, anti-racism. <laughs> <laughs> so here's another example, which involves quote Saida Grundy, an associate professor of sociology at BU and former car employee. Uh, she complained about a toxic environment and the mismanagement of funds. Quote. Uh, This is from the article, the 2021-2022 anti-bigotry convening, a policy project mentioned in the donor impact report, brought together 35 scholars for an output of short essays regarding different intersections of identity, all funded by a $200,000 grant from the Ford Foundation, according to the CAR budget document. And again, CAR is the uh, Center for Anti-Racist Research. Uh, The convening was an academic year-long virtual fellowship culminating in a report of collected essays that contributed, quote, to public conversations about bigotry by focusing particularly on its structural aspects, end quote. Blah, blah, blah. Grundy said several faculty affiliates who participated in the convening, quote, walked away from the project soured by what they feel was not only an an exploitative ask, but also a deeply anti-intellectual endeavor, end quote. Anti-intellectual because the project solely promoted Kendi's work, quote, not a scholarly dialogue, end quote. So one other person quoted uh, in this student paper disagreed with that. But Katie, like I was thinking about what group of people likes to write and talk and think a lot about identity. And the answer is wealthy Journalists. journalists, wealthy people with college degrees. They were a focus of a lot of cars efforts. Uh, This brings me to an email I got from a listener that I think raises some interesting points. I feel kind of torn on this, this being the, uh, I was emailing with this listener about about this whole Kendi thing, because being real, the sources of income which led to Kendi having that money were never, ever going to redirect that money to something good. So I think there's basically no opportunity cost, really. And like, if white people want to give their money away, why not let Kendi have it? Maybe he will have a nice holiday or a new car or something. And hey, good for him. Hold that thought, actually. It is really the same for Syrah Rao. Were the people buying those soft dom dinner parties going to spend their money on something better? 
But um, please explain who she is for people who don't. She's know. the race to dinner woman who um, you can pay her to come to your house and and yell at you for being an yell evil white you. woman. Yeah, and if you cry, she just yells at you harder. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's a shame that a bunch of other people come to think that this is what progressive politics looks like. It probably puts off sensible people and attracts idiots. So if nothing else, it makes my life a bit more dull. I don't know. Does this make sense? I feel very cynical, but basically the two wolves inside me are one saying, who cares? This money was never going to be well used. And another saying, this stuff shapes the public perception of the left to a massively disproportionate degree. And maybe that latter has downsides I am not really appreciating. What do you think of that? I think that's those are really good points. I mean, so with the center collapsing, I know that you never check Twitter anymore, but there was really absolute glee on the part of anti-woke types. And I can see why. It's There's a lot of schadenfreude there. Um, and it's also kind of funny because you feel like, oh, these dupes, he he's a grifter, These, which is what a lot of people have been saying. I don't think he is because I think he's a true believer, but he's these people, these dupes, they were taken and nothing came out of it. But on the other hand, like this sort of thing doesn't lead to any sort of racial project progress. And I think it does distract from what could be actually, I don't know, beneficial. Yeah. Although I don't know what those would be. Well, I feel like there's like only so many big national focusing events like George Floyd's murder. And yeah, people are not rational or well-informed when it comes to where they spend their, where they donate as Jack Dorsey definitively and embarrassingly proved to all of us. I just, I wish some other option had announced itself, like an option that if you literally took the $43 million, I mean, I feel like we've said this before, that they they gave to the BU Anti-Racism Center and just gave it to poor people. That would have been more useful, I think, than what happened. Sure, I guess. But the way to do that, to redistribute that, is like through things like reparation or taxes, which are also incredibly unpopular policy positions. I mean, well, but there's like class first... Uh, look, this whole thing is silly because we uh, Congress can't pass anything. We have a right. in certain ways a broken and insufficient welfare state. But a lot of like class first policies are not unpopular. And and there's like no, I'm specifically are... talking about reparations yeah. and things that are not class first, things that are are race first. Yeah, I mean, my thing would always I'm always I'm more into giving money to poor people than on the basis of their skin color. But but point taken. And this is really similar to what happened to BLM. I mean, there are many questions about where that money went. As far as we know, it mostly went to paying for Patrice Culler's third and fourth homes, right? <laughs> yeah, I was overdue, but like in the, in the course of researching this, I finally read that article in New York Magazine from forever ago, the, the Murky Finances of Black Lives Matter by Sean Campbell. It's really brave journalism. And, and part of the problem was just this insane level of disorganization and sloppiness on the part of basically everyone during the peak of the reckoning. This part was infuriating. Quote, BLMGNF, that's Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, has never been a model of fiscal clarity, and even people close to the organization find its arrangement confusing. Over the years, there have been nonprofit and for-profit arms. The BLM Global Network Foundation is distinct from the dissolved BLM Global Network, which is distinct from the BLM Action Fund, BLM Grassroots, and the BLM Political Action Committee. Tides, that's a foundation, sponsored an effort called the BLM Global Network Project and replaced it with the BLM Support Fund. BuzzFeed, <laughs> this part's awful. BuzzFeed News reported in 2020 that Apple, Google, Microsoft, and other corporations nearly donated $4 million to an entity called the Black Lives Matter Foundation before realizing it had no connection to the group started by Colors. Oh my God. So it was just so- the lookalike. <laughs> the lookalike charity, in fact, advocated, quote, bringing the community and police closer together, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no one. It was just like like de- people desperate to show they're doing the right things. Uh, uh, Katie, I regret to inform you, we made a donation to block <laughs> blurbs bladders. I didn't read it closely enough. So yeah, there were also issues of alleged misuse of funds with BLM, as you noted. But what really stood out to me the most in that article um, is like there were relatives of people who had been killed by police who said that BLM used those deaths, including their loved ones' likenesses, to raise money. But these were folks from poor backgrounds, and they didn't really see any benefit to the the glitzy activism. And and it just goes back to the class thing, like endlessly. The folks who emerged at the top of BLM had access to all this money, to writing and speaking opportunities. So it's just case after case of the folks in the most desperate situations uh, who most desperately need help uh, getting left behind. So there was a pretty clean parallel, albeit on a smaller monetary scale, that Michelle Goldberg raised in her column, uh, Ibram X. Kendi and the Problem with Celebrity Fundraising. This has to do with an organization called Family Matters First, which she describes as a group that um, helps families caught in the welfare system. So the Center for Anti-Racist Research had a partnership with this group, uh, but Goldberg writes, quote, Last week, however, Family Matters First found out that its contract with the center had been terminated ahead of schedule, meaning the group won't receive $10,000 it was counting on. Tatiana Rodriguez, the founder, told me that the association with the center had meant a great deal to her tiny organization. This was something that we were excited about as a community, she said. Now she feels betrayed by Kendi. But with all the money sloshing around in that brief messianic period in 2020, she shouldn't have had to go through him in the first place. Just like... Damn fucking straight. This community group has to scratch and beg for $10,000 when there's tens of millions of dollars sloshing around. Um, And I'm not even saying like, I don't know anything about this group. You don't know that a group's good just because it does virtuous work, but all else being equal, I'd sure as hell rather have that money go into an organization like Family Matters First than to some big shiny new center for researching anti-racism where it could end up I don't know, giving Angela Davis more money. I, or I don't know what, it, we don't know what most of it did. So do you think at the end of the day, would you call Kendi a grifter? Until just a few hours ago, I would have said no. Like people throw around that term way too much. I was pretty uh, convinced by this John McWhorter Times newsletter headline, don't call Ibram X. Kendi a grifter. It, it was a good example of just sort of grace and charity and fairness that's often absent from public intellectual life. So McWhorter and Kendi don't like one another. McWhorter acknowledges that, but he basically just points out like, look, this guy seems to really believe this stuff. It's not fair to call him a grifter. He's not lying. Is that more or less your stance? Yeah, I reserve the term grifter for people who are preaching platitudes that they don't believe in order to earn money specifically, not people who are true believers. I don't know if one is better than the other. Yeah. But I, I think he's a true believer. On the other hand, it seems like we might get some more information about the potentially murky finances of the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research. The Free Beacon just reported today, Friday, October 6th, as summed up by Byron York on Twitter, quote, Ibram X. Kendi's anti-racism business at Boston University included the school loaning his brother-in-law $600,000 to help, quote, cover the down payment for a $4.56 million luxury penthouse triplex, end quote. Damn. Okay, so maybe not a, a, a grifter, but a thief. Yeah, something. Jesse, you probably saw this, but Ibram X. Kendi's, his response to all this was pretty amazing. He posted a little response on Twitter. We'll post a link to it in the show notes. And he talks about how he's proud of the accomplishments and, and proud of how talented and committed the staff were. He also talks about the difficulty of leading an organization in the midst of a pandemic, starting out in this sort of all Zoom setting. But then it ends with this. Leaders of color and women leaders are often held to different standards and routinely have their authority undermined or questioned. (laughs) 
And I found that pretty amazing in light of everything that we've heard about this, because I mean, he said he, he, he says different standards. He doesn't say higher standards, which is what I think he's sort of implying. But in this case, it seems like uh, perhaps he was held to lower standards. Yep. And this reminded me of something I saw recently with Blair White. So Blair White, for people who don't know, she's a trans cons- uh, influencer. She's very conservative. And she did this debate recently. I think it'll be on YouTube soon uh, with it was like her and a few other conservative trans influencers debating some liberal trans influencers. And she played this clip of it from her Instagram. And in the clip, she's talking with she's like in this heated debate with a, a black trans, a liberal black trans woman. And this black trans woman, she says to her something like, you know, there are just opportunities that I don't get that you will get because you're white and I'm black. And Blair turns to her and says, uh, you got invited to the White House. <laughs> and then and then later when she posts this on Instagram, she lists all of these other accolades that this, that this trans woman has and all these, you know, she's gotten like pretty glowing press coverage, shit that Blair will never get, not because of her race, but because of her politics. But I was reminded of that when I saw this Ibram, Ibram Kendi quote that there's a, you know, that I think there's a, an assumption based on years of history that people of color and women, minority groups are held to different standards. There's that old phrase about how women have to do the same as men, but but backwards in high heels. And in a case like this, to deny that there are some advantages to having a, quote, marginalized identity like Ibram Kendi, I, to me, it just feels like very gaslighting. Yeah. In some settings, again, as we've said, if, totally. you, if you have the right politics, Coleman Hughes right. will not get invited to the White House. Well, maybe the next Trump White House. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I forgot to mention Kendi also got the 2021 MacArthur Genius Grant. So true, true. it's also like in reading his statement, it's like, well, another interpretation is that if you receive tens of billions of dollars in funding, you will be scrutinized for it, which strikes me as fair and not really about his skin color. But people can differ. Yeah, that's definitely fair. And I think the uh, the other evidence, not that we need more, that there are some benefits to having a marginalized identity is that this is something that people opt into. And if, so if this weren't true, then you wouldn't have, you know, white women in particular putting on spray tans and pretending to be non-white. That wouldn't happen if, if there weren't some advantages there. It reminds me of an old uh, folk tale uh, that was passed down from the African great grandfather I just discovered I had. <laughs> um, so, Katie, do you think this is maybe the death knell of the reckoning? Will it be replaced by something better, or will things just keep getting stupider forever? I don't think the reckoning is over. I think that it has it has faded from the public consciousness as much. I mean, nothing is going to replace that summer of 2020 when it really seemed like every news story was about race. I mean, I used to play this game where I would turn on NPR and I would count the seconds until they started talking about some sort of identity thing, specifically race. And it was usually under 10 seconds. They still talk about identity too much, but the zeitgeist has moved on. I do think that what happens in the next presidential election could really impact the discourse about this stuff. And if Trump wins, I think we're going to see a resurgence of allegations of everything is racist because this will prove to people that the United States is a fundamentally fascist nation. So Kendi just goes to another city and sets up shop with a new anti-racism, third anti-racism center. He should go to Canada. I think Canada is ripe for business. Um, (laughs) He sells anti-racist tonic. Yeah. There's there's one other thing I want to say about this. So we're mostly talking about wealthy people giving money to this one particular guy. And obviously there was a lot of that. He got an insane amount of money for this center. 
But I also saw, and this is just from what I observed, this is anecdotal, but I saw a lot of calls on things like social media for mutual aid, which to me just seems like a bunch of people who are underemployed, probably people who don't have much money, passing the same $20 bill back and forth between each other. And those people are obviously not the beneficiaries of great largesse like Ibram, Ibram Kendi was. Like, for instance, there's a story I worked on for several weeks earlier this summer I wasn't able to tell the full story for various reasons. Basically, people who were participating decided they didn't want to participate after all. But this story was about a black anti-racist trainer who was going around to various small businesses and essentially extorting them. So she would do a training at these at these businesses. And then afterwards, she would call them out on social media and then send them bills for her emotional labor. And I talked to several people who were small business owners who Venmoed this anti-racist trainer $10,000 or even more. Uh, one small business owner actually lost her entire business over this. And so, so insane. It is insane. The story is actually much crazier than this. I hope to be able to tell the full story at some point. And I think those are the stories that are undertold about this whole event. And those are the stories that really stick with me because we're not talking about rich people who donated the $10 million they found in their couch cushions or whatever. We're talking about small business owners who really didn't have a lot, who were forced to participate in this process because by not participating in it, they risked even greater social death. And, and you know, the social yeah. death happened anyway. The cancellation happened anyway. Um, so I don't know. Those are the stories to me that I guess I'm more concerned about than Jack Dorsey losing his $10 million. Yeah, Jack Dorsey will be okay, I think. Yeah, I hear Blue Sky's going very well for him. Yeah, this is uh it's been quite a reckoning, Katie. I'm I'm tired, y'all. Any any other questions, Katie? Anything else? No, but keep us posted if uh if any more rec- reporting comes out about this situation with his brother-in-law. Very uh yeah, that's pretty wild and brazen if it's as described. Uh, yeah. Like brother-in-law, not even his Not brothers. even not even blood, yeah. yeah. Anyway, thank you for listening, Katie. Thank you for participating in this reckoning with me. We'll get there. We have wrecked. We have wrecked. This has been Blocked and Reported. As always, we're produced with help from Tracy Woodgreens and Jessica, the 80s baby. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, I'm sorry I donated to Blurk Blive's bladder. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, in this house, we believe love is love, science is real, and Black Lives Matter. No, not that Black Life, the other one. 